Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. How did you end up committing murder? I am joined by the one, the only, Quan Quinn. I was tried for the death penalty, but because I lied at trial, I coached witnesses, and I got rid of evidence, They found me guilty of second-degree murder. I'm the executive director for Defy Ventures in Southern California. Here's a perfect justifiable excuse for me to shoot these guys. And I orchestrated um, us following them for about 20 miles on the freeway uh, until I saw that there was not a lot of cars nearby. And I had the driver of my car pull up next to them. I, I, I unloaded my whole clip into the car. What was your journey like in the prison estate in America before you reached that point of self-discovery? I'll find a way to hustle for today or, okay, make sure I, I um, inflict violence on this person today so they don't inflict violence on me tomorrow. Or... Welcome to Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This podcast focuses on the theme of second chance, exploring who deserves it, who has the authority to grant it, and what it means. We speak with people from diverse backgrounds, including those who have been given second chances and those who some might argue don't deserve them. It may seem unlikely, but many successful entrepreneurs have come from difficult backgrounds and turned their lives around. With the right mindset, perseverance and willingness to learn new skills, anyone can transform their life and create a successful business. Take the story of Quan Huynh, for example. In 1999, he shot and killed another man in Hollywood in a gang-related incident and spent 22 years in prison. However, on his release in 2015, he channeled his drive and determination into something positive, setting up his own business, Defy Ventures. He even received the Peace Fellowship Award for his work with the Alternative to Violence Project, helping others to heal and find purpose. Journaling is a powerful tool that Huynh used to understand himself, his past and create a new future. His writings in prison led him to author the book Sparrow in the Razor Wire and actively shift the narrative of what it truly means to be a former offender. In this episode, he shares what it was like to be behind bars and how he found freedom within to keep bouncing back from even his 10th chance at life. Well, look, let's start this conversation, Kwan, by you describing yourself, because I've seen um, a TEDx talk that you've given, I've read a few articles uh, about your journey, but I always like to start with how you would describe yourself as opposed to how other people 
would, would describe you. So thinking about who you are today, how would you describe yourself for people listening, Kwan? I actually like how somebody described me when I was in prison. She, she wrote on this like little sheet. We did like a three-day workshop when I was facilitating in there. And she wrote on this little sheet because we have the sheet after the events. Like people write like little notes. And she wrote to me, you are a mighty warrior, a magician, and a mountain of goodness. You're one of the greatest treasures of my life. And I just gravitated to those words. I still have that sheet. Um, so then I actually used it as part of my bio moving forward because I just loved those words. Like, oh my God, I've never been described like that. And it's something that I'd love to aspire to. So I guess if, if I could wave a magic wand and describe myself, yeah, I would say I'm a mighty warrior and a magician and a mother of goodness. And why is that? Why would you describe yourself or adopt the description that this woman gave to you? Because I never saw myself in, in that light. Like, I, I, I didn't, like, to have someone call me a mountain of goodness, you know, and, and, and I liked the, the warrior part and, and the magician part. I, I, knew, I knew that reference, like, my facilitating skills and being able to weave magic for the men and um, the volunteers that came in. So that's just, yeah, I think mostly the mountain of goodness part. It's just be, being able to have a different perspective of how somebody saw me. And you mentioned at the get-go that that was um, an encounter you had with a person in prison. Why was you in prison? For those who have no idea who Kwan is, why was you in prison, Kwan? I, I was in prison for the murder of another human being by the name of Min Nguyen. I shot and killed a man in 1999 and tried to shoot and kill his three friends after um, an altercation at a nightclub. And the sentence you got for that shooting? I was tried for the death penalty. Um, I was ultimately found guilty of second degree murder and given a 15 year to life sentence in a California prison, uh, which meant at, the, at that time uh, a death sentence anyway, because nobody had paroled from a California prison under a life sentence since 1977. So I went to prison thinking, I'm just going to die in here. Um, and so I'm just going to continue to live the way I want to live. It, it didn't matter. So uh, I'm ashamed to say when I first went in, there was not one uh, ounce of remorse. I had no sense of remorse in it. Well, let's go back to the beginning then. How did you find yourself in a situation where you felt necessary or you felt it necessary to not only pull out a gun, point it at another person, but pull the trigger, not just at one person who you killed, but other people that you attempted to kill. How did you find yourself in that situation, Kwan? And by that, I'm asking, what was your lifestyle like? Yeah, um, well, by that, by that time, I was heavily involved with a uh, very violent and ruthless uh, Vietnamese gang in Southern California. Um, and I think for many years, I told myself, oh, that's, that's why it happened, only because I'm in a gang and only because they were also gang members. It wasn't until after um, many years of self-reflection that I understood my own self-motivations in uh, doing it. And it really had nothing to do with the gangs, but it had a, a, a lot of different things to do with me internally. And it was my inability to express my frustration, my my disappointment, my anger, um, and I just took it out on on other people, and I just used the gang as a vehicle to to be able to express. Like, okay, it's funny because I never looked at myself as an angry person, and it wasn't until after some self reflection that yeah, you know what, I was probably one of the most angry people out there, but I hid it behind the gang life, and I hid it behind. So let's say I'm I'm feeling frustrated about something in my life then I think a normal, healthy human being can express their emotions and talk about it. I didn't, I shut it down and I go out with the gang and I look for trouble and then I use that as an opportunity to vent my emotions, but physically and, and, and violently on other people. How, how did you end up in a gang in the first place? What was your lifestyle like as a young man? I grew up in Provo, Utah, which is uh, during that time, it was right after the Vietnam War, so I would not be surprised if we were the very first Vietnamese family there uh, to settle in Utah. It's only because my father uh, had come to the U.S. before, 
Um, my mom had never seen snow, and in filling out the sponsorship of where we were going to settle, uh, my dad decided, well, I'm going to take my wife and my like probably several-month-old son to settle in Utah just so my mom could see snow. So my younger brother and sister were born there in Utah. My father created the Vietnamese Refugee Association, which was uh, an organization to help men and women coming to the U.S. settle in their new homeland. I didn't understand what he was doing at the time. I didn't understand why he was trying to talk to me about helping out the community and not getting paid for it. I didn't understand any of that. Um, my father got diagnosed with leukemia later on and passed away uh, when I was 13. So I did not deal well with that death. My whole family didn't deal well, but we never talked about it. By the time he passed away, we had moved out to California, settled in Orange County, which had a pretty large population of Vietnamese. In Utah, I never felt like I fit in. Only Vietnamese family there. And, and I remember growing up thinking, why can't I just look normal like these kids around me? not understanding culture, not understanding our ethnicity. Um, and for me, I don't think I wanted to understand. I just felt like, why do I feel different? Why do I feel like I don't fit in? And why are these kids teasing me? Why do they bully us? Then when we moved out here to California, that was my first time going to school with other uh, kids of Vietnamese descent and other kids uh, of color. and. I also was teased by these Vietnamese kids because I couldn't speak Vietnamese well. So then I think there was a part of me just growing up, I never felt like I really fit in or that there was something fundamentally wrong with me. And um, after my father passed away, the criminal and gang lifestyle just drew me in. And I, that is where I felt like I fit in for once, where I felt accepted. And um, that's how I ended up in a gang. So the turn in your life came when your father passed away and when you started to socialize with other Vietnamese. What, what was you like at school? Was you completely disrupted from your education because of the lifestyle you wanted to live? I did, I did well in school. Uh, I enjoyed school. There was a part of me that I think as a, 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 a little boy growing up, there was always a part of me that wanted to be accepted and liked and recognized. So getting good grades can help me get recognized. Doing well in school can fulfill the, that part of my role so that my mom and her friends can say, this is a good kid. Um, so there was like, I think for myself growing up, I just always chased acceptance and recognition, whether that's, you know, the, the, as a student or the flip side as a gang member. And it, and it, it was a dual role, but I see it now as just fundamentally just wanting to be liked, just wanting to be accepted, but I, I pursued it in a very unhealthy um, and violent path in the gang lifestyle. And I suppose that's, that's really important for anybody listening to this who themselves are struggling with their teenage kids, who may be themselves being drawn into gang life to be accepted because um, they're ostracized by communities or, or by society as a whole because of the color of their skin, because of their, their nationality, their ethnicity. What do you think it was in your life that drew you into the gang? Uh, I, and I get that it was a part of you wanting to be accepted, um, but you can be accepted in many different ways. What was the draw to the gang life? This, there's, this, there's also a fundamental sense of excitement of course, I never felt like I uh, fit in with my peers that were of that were Caucasian or were different. So, get in the gang life with the Vietnamese. Then there's a part of me feel like, oh, you know what? I'm finally where I actually belong. This is this is these are my people. These, you know, like during the '90s, during that time here in Orange County or Southern California. There was quite a bit of um, racial tensions between, you know, like, so if I'm going to school with the white kids or the Hispanic kids and their gang elements are picking on us, but then, um, so we're telling ourselves this is a way to protect our people or community. Unfortunately, though, because of that, uh, and then the young male t testosterone, so it's not even only about protecting our community, now this becomes my group, my family, my tribe. And, and so then it's not even about protecting our race because now it's protecting our name or faces. 
Um, and how did it manifest yeah. itself? Because it's interesting you described the gang as a group, because in, in some societies, people are labelled as a gang when actually they're just a group of friends who can be labelled a gang. But I know that from what you say, it, it manifested itself into violent actions. Yeah. Well, I think it was, that's exactly what it was start out, a group of our friends that we hang out. But during that time and era, everyone has their group of friends. So they knew us as, oh, you're like that group or you or this group. And we never looked at ourselves as a gang, but there were a lot of gang elements around. My friends get in a fight and you have to jump in. And then my friends get in a fight with your friends and we end up fighting each other. Now there's problems and suddenly our group doesn't like your group and things escalate. And, you know, then someone introduces a knife or a gun into the group and now it's evolved and suddenly everybody's sucked in and now they know us as this group. But then there's a sense of recognition and there's like name, like a name recognition and for me, it fulfills that shallow part of me, like, oh, I'm actually somebody. I'm actually recognized, feared, or people talk about me. Now I've become popular. So it, it, it fulfilled some fundamental parts that I was lacking or I felt I was lacking growing up uh, within myself. And was it a, an organized gang to the extent that it was involved in various forms of criminality or was it a, a, a bunch of young guys who, as you've just described, are looking for recognition, to be tough, to be protective of, of each other? It would, I would answer that both. It started as a bunch of guys and young friends. But of course, then we become more criminally sophisticated as we decide to, to you know, get involved. Okay, well, now first let's, we first start by breaking into cars. Later on, it becomes... Uh, check fraud, which then evolved to this, this, that, robberies and uh, having guns. Now, now it's street fighting and, and, and gang warfare. And so, yeah, of course, it starts seemingly harmless or just okay, a bunch of little misfits. But then, I, I even when I look back, it's just that era, that time where, or I think our whole community was adjusting, not really sure of our place in this world, and then also tie into that which I didn't understand at the time, the mass incarceration policies of the United States um, and that federal funding to infuse like their, the local police stations with like military vehicles and assault rifles and things like that. So I remember just in this, during that time when I'm with my friends and being pulled over by the police and they're pulling guns on us and rifles and, and, and accusing us of being gang members and we weren't yet at the time. But then, so it almost became like, okay, it's an us versus them. These, this is a racial uh, thing. It's not only affecting these black and brown communities of color now, it's also spilled over into our communities and, and them labeling us as gang members or them saying that we were gang members when we weren't, but then later on just thinking, okay, well, they think we are and I guess we are. And, just being okay and accepting that instead of realizing, wait, these are, these are, um, like I see it now as in a, in a totally different light. These are things that happen to communities of color here in the United States during those, those times and that uh, policies. And I wonder if it's that kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? As you say, they labeled you something so you became exactly what it is that they said you were were you a gang that had a, a, a that signified as in tattoos or a name that kind of measured you against other Vietnamese gangs or other cultural gangs yes later on we were later on we were I mean at the beginning it was just our friends or this is our groups and but later on yeah it was by by name it was by um yeah just people knew who we were they knew who, what our group did um, what was the name of your gang at the time? The time it was called uh, Boy Dai Family. I mean, it's a Vietnamese saying meaning like a life of dust. Like we just go wherever the the winds of life push us. So it's the life of dust. And sometimes there can be a structure to gang life. Was your life structured, or was you living by just the gang code in in the sense that you were committing criminal criminal crimes, um, or, or was you just living a very chaotic? life by dust as you describe i think that's how we we viewed like okay whatever happens happens like it, like there, it wasn't an organized gang where okay like this is these are our, our operations and this is how things are run strategically and there's a plan to take over it wasn't that it was more okay well we're hanging out yes there are 
operations that are running that are doing it, but this is okay. Well, he's he's able to he has a connection to buy guns, or he has a connection to buy guns for cheaper. We could sell to other groups, or oh, this person has a. Uh, I remember there was I think when I was just turned sixteen, my friend's older brothers were they had this connection where um, when you deposit. Uh, a, a payroll check as long as it's under $800 um, into a bank account it clears like that same day you don't have to wait three days so what we were doing at the time is they said let's play one account and you so you just drive to each Wells Fargo branch for example or each Bank of America branch and you deposit the uh, a payroll check that's under $800 like $799 and if we hit 20 30 of those in one day Suddenly, one person's account will have twenty, thirty thousand dollars. The next day, go and pull it out, and that just became like, oh, this is this is a great way to to to, to get money fast and and to hustle. And um, but then, yet, where do we get payroll checks? And so then it involves, okay, well, let's we have to find real payroll checks somewhere. Okay, let's do payroll checks, but if we steal payroll checks. Let's say you run into a liquor store to hold everyone up. You steal all their payroll checks, then they would know they could report it. So okay, let's run into a liquor store, lay everybody down, act like we're just taking money, go into the back, get like only three or four sheets of the payroll checks, so that we could, then nobody knows we can. So then it became so now we're paying this group of gangs to do the robberies, but their main thing is to get us payroll checks, and we're funneling that. We pay them a certain amount. They don't know what we're doing with the payroll checks. We take the payroll checks, and so then things evolved, and then now there's guns, and later on, so it's like. Uh, an involvement of criminality and sophistication. I would have to describe it like that. I mean, me as a 16-year-old, like I, I didn't know. Like, what do I know about any of that? I only, I only knew the bigger brothers were needed that, and here I am. Okay, I make a map, and here they give me all the checks, and I just go and I deposit them on. Okay, at the end of the day, they they give me some money, and they give me like a a burned credit card, and I just go buy video games and beef jerky, and then you know later on they tell me to hold this. Grab, come grab this briefcase. Inside the briefcase, there's some guns, and and I go, oh, now I'm 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 cool. I'm I'm tough. I, these these older guys like me, and so there was just that mentality, and and that I would have to say this deepening of a, a criminal sophistication, and then later on, uh, that spilling into the gang life, and and I'm already understanding certain things, or I just view the world that way, and yeah, and that's just evolved from there. And um, and where were I appreciate your your father had passed away at this point, and he was probably like most are the the kind of mentor, the inspiration, the kind of director in our lives, as are our mothers. But were there no mentors or people around you at the time who were trying to steer you and maybe your friends in the right direction? I wouldn't. I would say no. Um, I'm sure there were, but I don't know if there. Are, you know, like my my mother. After my father passed away, we were. I mean, during that time when he was in and out of the hospital for five years, we were broke, poverty. You know, like so. I mean, even as a a, a little kid, about nine, ten years old. Like I mean, my first job was as a paper boy because I didn't have money to buy shoes, and I mean, I had a find ways to so then kids don't get tease me at school and my younger brother so that I mean as little kids we already grew up hustling and then after my father passed away you know my father he's in the hospital but after he passed away my mom still had to find work so she finally finds work full-time so she's not around to really watch us and and I think there was a part of her that didn't know how to grieve and in many ways I'm not sure if she totally has grieved my father's death to this day but yeah so then I remember in high school there was a coach that when I was in on the wrestling team that tried to um, I think he saw that my brother and I were hanging out with the wrong kids and he did try to talk to us and there was a part of me that uh, uh, wished there were more people like that but yeah I think it, it fell on deaf ears for the most part because I think just in my circle and, 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 and social wise it was more like, okay my friends these are my friends this is my group that really gets me that accepts me as I am and and, and I'm recognized here I don't I won't be teased here I feel safe here so and with criminality and that lifestyle comes the attention of the authorities can you remember the first time um, you were arrested and prosecuted did that happen often or was it just something that happened when you ended up going to prison uh, uh, the first time I was arrested was when I was 17. Um, in high school, I was 
I mean, I always had this chip on my shoulder growing up because of my experiences with racism growing up in Utah. And in high school, we actually had um, beef with this uh, self-proclaimed skinhead group. And so then there was, uh, I think, a few months, several, about six months before my first arrest, uh, we had gotten to a fight with some skinhead kids at school. And then later on, it, it, it happened at a, a beach where we beat up one of the kids really bad. About a few weeks later, his mom had come in. I was working at Subway Sandwiches, and um, his mom had come in with another guy, uh, like all tattooed, I guess, from some skinhead group. Um, I didn't know who she was at the time, but then uh, when she said that she was his mom and that uh, she wanted to make sure that we weren't going to touch her son anymore, um, we, we beat up her son because her son had told on my brother for a burglary that uh, they did together. And um, and I said, yeah, as long as your son doesn't tell. Uh, I found out later on the streets that her mom, his mom and that man would, were had come in with a pistol to, sh to shoot and kill me. Um, I was scared, but I was like, oh wow, this is, now, now it's on another level. So then for my group of friends, like, okay, well now we gotta find a gun. Um, so we went and got a gun. And then suddenly holding a gun for the first time, like this is our gun, we carry it everywhere with us, never shooting anybody, we, but everything out of our mouths at the time. Now we have a gun, some some older people, some adults wanted to, from a, a real gang came to try to kill me, and so now we have to protect ourselves. Then one night, my brother came to my work and said that same uh, skinhead had called my house and threatened to kill my mom. He's like, do you know where he lives? So I didn't, I asked my coworker who, um, she like, oh yeah, I, I know where uh, Gumby lives. And she drew the pet map, gave it to us. And my brother and my friends said, we'll be back at 10 o'clock tonight to pick you up and we'll find uh, his house and we'll shoot this up. And I was fine with it. Yeah, let's go, we're gonna shoot them up. How dare they threaten to kill my mom, you know? We'd never shot anybody before. So I get off at 10, my brother didn't come to pick me up. When I went home, my brother was laid in bed and he was under the, the blanket, like he was scared. I, I was like, what happened? He's like, oh, we, we left and then we went to the arcade. We couldn't find a, uh, the, the map was no good. So we found somebody else at the arcade that showed us where the house was. And Red ran up inside, knocked on the door and shot, shot them. There was four people inside. Fortunately, they all survived, but uh, they arrested me for conspiracy to commit murder because that girl had drawn the map for us um, even though she was never arrested and at the time I'm like this is this is so unfair because what because she's white and she drew the map but she didn't go but I'm there and they said I was the mastermind when I wasn't the mastermind I I was there talking tough but I didn't ever think that my friend would find a place or anyone would end up getting shot so um, I think that first arrest also uh, confirmed to me in my head this is an unjust system it's a racist system and I don't have a part in this world and I got a raw deal and um, woe is me and so without ever examining like my own uh, responsibility in it and that just began longer path of okay continued criminality and now I'm in uh, jail and I was sent up to the California Youth Authority which at the time were um, very violent places for young men which then um, with a lot of gang ties and that is where I got really immersed in the gang culture so when I came out two and a half years later yeah it was I had, I had turned into a, uh, uh, you know at the time I thought oh people here at California Youth Authority that's all oh, that that must be gladiator school these kids are tough and these this is the, the true gang members and um, I thought that was cool and that's that's just how it continued to to spin out of control from there. And did you end up going back in and out of prison for a yeah. number of times? How many times yeah, before times. the last time? Four. I, I've done a total of 22 years of my life uh, incarcerated. And um, yeah, for about six years and then uh, of going in and out and then um, ultimately committing murder and I ended up doing 16 years. How did you end up committing murder? What happened? So I uh, I got um, 
I, I got up for the second to last time in 1998 and I was working at this organization called the Gallup Organization. Um, I was recognized as their interviewer of the year. I was doing, then they asked me to uh, take a management interview and so that I could be one of the three managers at the site to oversee the operations for 300 interviewers. So for me, when that happened, I was like, man, something's finally going right in my life for once. Like, here's my opportunity. I took the management test. The, the test is fully personality based. And it comes back and they told me, Quan, we're sorry, you are not a fit. So I think their words just like that, it wasn't intentionally meant to, to but for me, it, it touched on that core part of me. See, I don't fit. I don't have a place in this world. And I didn't talk about it. I, I remember I didn't talk to my girlfriend. I went downstairs, got drunk, didn't tell my mom about it. And within two weeks, I went to the nightclub with a couple of my buddies from the gang. And um, I brought my gun along. And when I came out the club that night, I found out my homeboys had gotten in a fight with another group. So for me, it was like, okay, here's my opportunity to take out everything that's wrong with my life onto this guy here's a perfect justifiable excuse for me to shoot these guys and i orchestrated um us following them for about 20 miles on the freeway uh, until i saw that there was not a lot of cars nearby and i had the driver of my car pull up next to them i i, I had unloaded my whole clip into the car um, and that's how i shot and killed uh, mr minuwin and injured the other three men that were in the car so that's that's exactly how it happened. How were you caught? How did the police catch you? The police caught me about four or five months later. So before, I guess when that whole first altercation happened, they had wrote down the license plate of one of the other cars. Um, at trial, they said it was because they uh, were going to report it to police, which was not true. They wrote it down because in the gang life, like there's, everybody's cars looks the same, so you want to write down the last place so they could ambush us next time, and that's why they wrote it down. But so they had had actually wrote down the license plate of uh, one of the one of the homegirls' cars, and um, so when I did the shooting, they actually gave the the license plate to the police. The police did a raid on her house the next day and um, th that's where the investigation began and they knew that she had ties to us um, and so they were so I knew that I, I knew like oh they, they were but the thing is she didn't witness the shooting she didn't know that we had done the shooting so when um, I had talked to her I was like did you see anything no did you I go okay then you don't have to worry about anything so I began coaching her and them already. I, I, I got rid of evidence. I, I, I broke the gun down into different pieces, got rid of it. And then when they be, began investigating our group, they arrested one of my homeboys for a different case. And he he was also in the car with me. So he gave up about me being a shooter and gave up about a bunch of other stuff. So that's why they tried me for the death penalty for, I think it was like all these things for lying in wait and uh, for the benefit of the street gang and all these additional enhancement. But I was found guilty of only second degree murder because the jury didn't believe him. My attorney and I, we had twisted, twisted his words around so they didn't know who did the shooting. They didn't know if it was him or me and he wasn't a reliable witness. Um, I had got rid of that evidence like I said and then I got on the stand and I lied and I said I wasn't even the shooter. This guy made this up and he pulled the gun. And, um, so we twisted everything around because he was he was uh, given granted immunity to testify against me. The jury didn't think I was the shooter. They found me guilty under the felony murder rule, uh, which has since been overturned. But I went up to prison with that life sentence. And what was that life sentence? In 15 years to life. And how long like did you serve in prison? I did 16. Uh, there were some rulings that came down from the Supreme Court where uh, they had to say what's the difference between a life without possibility of parole and a life with possibility. Because like I shared earlier, California had not paroled one single life-term prisoner regardless of uh, the time since 1977. Uh, it was a woman that fought it all the way to the Supreme Court and she opened the doors for us, the life of population, I think in like 2007, 2008. And then 
men began litigating their cases, but it still did not actually start to happen until like 2014, 15, where we started to see like less than two, three percent of men going home. And then by that time, I had actually turned my life around. I saw the world in, in a much different way. I was practicing, uh, uh, you know, I think several things had happened. My grandfather had passed away and it made me think about, it was my father's father and it made me think about like, where, how did my life end up like this? My brother had sent me a picture of my my niece, his daughter, and I saw her picture for the first time. I remember thinking, damn, she looks exactly like my brother, just as a little girl. And it took me back to my own childhood, like how did my life end up like this? Is it, Am I meant to die in here? Is, is this it for me? And fortunately, the one thing that did give me escape were books. So I was a huge bookworm in prison. Um, and during that time, I, I have this habit when I'm reading, I'll go down rabbit trails of, I, I, I become fascinated with the book. And I go into the back, I go into the acknowledgments, see what they, uh, who else influenced their writings. And I just go down these rabbit trails of different books. I've always loved business books, entrepreneurship books, and somehow during that time, going down these different rabbit trails, I became very fascinated with the books on the saints, uh, in particular stories of saints that had failed miserably in their lives, but then had yet gone, gone on to leave a legacy and to create uh, and, and make huge impact. Um, so then, of course, being in, uh, fascinated with those books, then I go down other trails of books on mindfulness and personal development. Um, so I would have to say it's like it became like this perfect storm for like my head and my heart and my soul. And um, so it was one morning on the, the prison yard, my head filled with these teachings and these meditations. And then I asked myself like, why do I have to view prison as punishment? Why can't um, I look at this as a place where I can remake myself even if even if I'm going to die in here. And of course, the answer comes back from the universe, like, yeah, you, you can. And so I, re I remember that moment very well because the sun was barely coming up over the hills and I could feel its warmth. In the blades of grass, I could see the individual drops of dew. And up above me in that razor wire, I heard a sparrow chirping. Um, and I tell everyone, like, yeah, that's, I, the sparrows had probably been chirping my whole prison term. I never heard it. But that day I heard it. And that day I would say it's where uh, it began for me. Like this awakening. Like recognizing other human beings as, yeah, well, you know, we're just all on a journey. Some of them much further along. Some of them perhaps not even awakened. But um, for me, um, that is where I have to say like, I, I saw the world for a different in a different light. It wasn't this cold, harsh, ugly place, but wait, here is my opportunity to become better. So one of the first things I did was, uh, I remember I, I felt very uh, led to uh, checking with a therapist and, and begin speaking about my father's death. This, mind you, this is 25 years after he passed away. And I be, that was where I began grieving him and then, of course, being the bookworm, I became very fascinated with the grief and loss process, in particular, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's model on grief and loss. And then in reading and understanding that, I, I started to see, wait, there's men all around me that are also grieving. They have an inability to mourn any of their losses, whether that's the loss of a loved one, the loss of their family because they've left them, even the loss of like friendships because they were uprooted from one prison and sent to another, and now there's no way to talk about any of this. So um, that made me uh, see there was so much pain, there was so much healing needed around me, and I saw what it did for me in going through my own process. So I put together this syllabus on grief and loss, submitted it to the prison psychologist who loved it, and we were able to create the prison's first ever grief and loss group. And for me to see it happening firsthand and to be there and to experience it and to see the opportunity for men to heal and and to be able to begin mourning, it was like the most meaningful, fulfilling moment of my life right there where I, I felt, you know what, I feel alive for once. like it, And, and, and I suddenly felt like this is my purpose. And um, 
yeah, I may not ever go home, but what else can I do? And I started getting involved with other groups, creating other groups. And then it became for me like just this process of refinement of, of my soul each day. Like what, what lesson can I learn from the universe today? How can I make myself a better person today? How can I be a small source of light for this man who perhaps is not awakened yet? Or how can I learn from this person crossing my path today? And so prison suddenly became a place for me where, okay, you know what? I'm far removed from the world. But yet here I am in this little forgotten, discarded corner, and I'm able to make an impact, and I felt alive. So um, I would say, like, that's why I say, like, I was liberated, and I felt absolutely free years before I was even paroled for my life sentence. It must have taken an incredible amount of, of energy out of you to get to that point. But it makes me wonder what your journey was like before you reached that enlightenment, Quan. You, you know, what your experience was like in prison before you found the the moment that you wanted to change. And, and notwithstanding the fact that there was no end goal in terms of your prison sentence, you know, life without parole, luckily that didn't come to fruition and you were released. What was your journey like in the prison estate in America before you reached that point of self-discovery I, I would have to describe it as bland and lifeless and directionless like okay this is what happens and okay let's just I'll just do what needs to be done for today I'll find a way to hustle for today or okay make sure I, I inflict violence on this person today so they don't inflict violence on me tomorrow or just it's just it's a very lonely way of living without knowing it or being able to acknowledge it within myself and or seeing it in others it was just like oh this is just prison and that's it and we're just going to die here and whereas after my sparrow and the razor wire moment and 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 being involved with groups suddenly i felt alive for once i felt i had purpose there was meaning and fulfillment yet it's it's the same exact place but now it's just a different perspective and that yeah that's the only way i could describe it and how did that perspective take you to the point where you started to see light light at the end of the tunnel as they say where there was i mean you talked about the the challenge at the supreme court that led to many other litigation cases where people were fighting for their freedom when did it happen for you and how did it happen for you kwan so what happened is in the california prison systems they give these hearing transcripts and it's the actual transcript of the hearing the men the culture in there men never share their transcripts they don't talk about it and and I, and I had no understanding of what the parole process looked like. I had a buddy that was also a bookworm. Him and I always shared books. And for some reason, one day he comes and like gives me like five or six or seven of his transcripts. He'd been down like 30 something years already. And he decided to let me like, hey, read this, but which was like unheard of. I opened it and in reading the transcript, the first realization I had is what he told me happened in the hearing and what actually happened were so far disconnected from reality that it made me think what is the narrative that we are telling ourselves and why is there this human tendency to cast ourselves in a good light so it just reinforced things that I was already examining within myself but then it made me think of a different reason and as I read it I was like I know why he's not home. I know why all of us are not home. It's not our crimes. It's not uh, what we did. It's what we're telling ourselves about what we did. And, and because of that, how we have not evolved or understood or come to a place of self-acceptance, self-forgiveness, and self-responsibility around books. Because by that time, I was fascinated with a whole bunch of those concepts. So like using those concepts with those lens and applying it to the parole process, I go, this is the secret. So I remember I told him like, hey, I think I know why you're not going home. And we started going through his parole transcripts. So there were guys in the, 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 the prison who looked at us like, what are you guys doing? And he tells them, oh, Quan is helping me prepare for the parole board. And they like, you guys are crazy. Quan's never gone to the parole board. How can he help you? And no one goes home. Like, what is this? So another of my buddies sits down we start going through it people i think that we're crazy but i was like man i think this is what it is and in talking about my buddy goes to the pro board 
and it's found suitable and that just opened up all types of doors and floodgates from there like man like wait what's going on and um, are you saying this? that that it was a part of the denial that lots of the men who had committed crimes of murder who were destined to spend like yourself the rest of your life in prison you were in self-denial about what you'd done and why you did what you did not just the crime but the person that you were and once you admitted that you were no longer things changed yeah that's the way i can only describe it like coming to a place of okay you know what i committed murder and these are the reasons why and it's not because this happened to me like understanding yes uh, this person might have grown up traumatized molested they did this all of those things can can contribute but at the end of the day where is personal responsibility and choice in this understanding the the factors that led up to the way you saw the world but then from there understanding that because of that you made these choices and accepting that and then from there how have you changed your life since then how have you come to a place of personal responsibility for choices even in during your prison sentence the choices we made to get more write-ups to get into riots to get into trouble understanding that process and coming to a place of self-acceptance and forgiveness for yourself but then since i've done this now how how can i demonstrate that i'm no longer that same person how what am i doing to make amends what am i doing to contribute to my community while i'm here and that's the i think for myself the irony in it is it sounds scary but that is where the true liberation and the freedom comes not being able to be paroled but coming to that place of you know what i did do all these things but i'm no longer that same person and i can embrace all the ugly parts of me because to be able to 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 do that then i can also like i uh, in my book uh chapter two the first sentence i say is i was not born a murderer so understanding that part of it also makes me realize okay i think c.s lewis had this this quote in mere christianity that i loved it was like you know I, i'm a butcher the paraphrasing of it but basically it's it's about the innumerable choices we make each day that can, will contribute to making us a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. That quote so resonated with me and it was just for me, each daily choice. Am I turning myself into a hellish creature or a heavenly creature? Because I knew I made so many millions of wrong choices over the years and that's how I became capable of committing murder. And once I understood that and acknowledged that within myself, then I also came to the same realization that also means on the flip side, if I make a correct choice for every moment of my life from here on out, then I can turn my soul, my my being, my whole self into something else. And I and I would say that is what I try to, to embody and aspire to each day in there. And that's the same concept I tried to get the men to embrace. Because that is where the true freedom comes. And how do you do that? How how do you find that resilience within yourself to become the person that makes the right choice every day after spending so long thinking differently? It, you, you know, and, and for you, it was books. It was what you were learning about the world and how other people think and behave. And you were embodying that. When you took it into the outside world, who did you become? I would say I became somebody that was okay with their flaws, their their mistakes. Um, I I think by that time I had cultivated in myself the embracement of following my intuition, like my gut, or listening to that inner voice. You know, depending on 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 people's belief systems, they they could call it that's your inner voice, that's God speaking, or that's just your intuition, my gut. But that's making choices but make, going and listening to my that gut and that's what that's what helped me to get out i mean and and how did i do it i mean it, it wasn't overnight it's just one choice at a time but then also giving myself a lot of grace that yes during this journey i will make mistakes i will falter i will still make wrong choices but being okay with that and and at least acknowledging that and then moving forward okay what is that proverb the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step and so just making the step in the right direction and you might step in the wrong direction and step in some shit but it's okay now tomorrow we step in the right direction and continuing to look that and suddenly i look back at all those thousands of steps and i saw wow i've been able to evolve and 
journaling that also helped me like going back to read some of my journals from years and I was like oh this is where this first thought came into my mind and look how it's grown look how this practice has grown so I think being open to to receive seeds of light and nourishment but then it also falls on me to uh, continue to till the soil of, of, of my soul and, and continue to nurture it with you know I remember coming to this thought process where if our soul is like a garden right and we have to continue to have to go back and till it and cultivate it that means there has to be an embracement of both the sun and the rain right the good times and the bad to help continue to grow and 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 help your soul to bloom so then i i, I saw setbacks not as oh it's over but this is this is necessary to help me to continue to grow and and and, and to flourish you wrote a and, book when you got out of prison or did you start the book when you were in prison and, and tell me what was that book about uh, the book is called Sparrow in the Razor Wire. It's my memoir. I wrote it after I came home. The book is written for men that are doing long or lifetime sentences. And it's, I share with them how did I come to my own sense of freedom years before I paroled from the, the life sentence. And, and specifically, it's written for men that I saw as my avatar as like my, my old bunkie David who was in a really dark place. I was helping other men go home already and every time I go back into the prisons and in talking with the uh, the man or woman like within five ten minutes I go man I could help this person I could help this person get there but yet I can't because I'm not there so that was a lot of my motivation in writing the book but then in in the way I wrote the book it was also I realized when I facilitated in there I felt most effective when I shared of my own challenges and my own struggles and my own lessons. It wasn't coming from a place where, okay, I'm a facilitator, let me teach you. So that's also the way I wrote the book. Like, okay, you know what? I'm gonna share my own challenges, my own failures, things I learned along the way. And I look at the, these are my seeds that I'm leaving for them, but it's up to them to take the seeds into their garden. And it's up to them to, from there, water the garden and to continue to find the embrace the sun and the rain to help them grow their garden um, but that's so that's the way I, I wrote it and and what do you dedicate your life to now Juan? I think I dedicate my life to changing the narrative of what, of what it means or the possibilities of what it means for someone that um, has committed a violent crime or has committed uh, 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 many violent crimes yeah, I, I, I've committed to, to changing the narrative of what it means to be formerly incarcerated and the possibilities of, of what you could do with your life um, after coming home and, and, and you know, giving back to the community, but doing it in a, in a very intentional way. Like, I, I think also, today I work at uh, Defy Ventures. It's, it's a nonprofit, and our mission is to shift mindsets to give people with criminal histories the best shot at a second chance. And I, I get I get to help affect systems change and the way men and women are basically given a second sentence upon their release with their stigma and barriers to entry. So my work in the prisons and what I do out here, I think it's it, it's very in alignment with how I see the world and very in alignment with my belief that you know every human being is is worth salvaging, um, and that's what I, I I truly believe. Like yeah, we. We, we can't just discard uh, everybody because we are all human beings and we're all imperfect. But I think in that is where um, we can actually help each other as a community and as a world. And, and, and it aligns exactly with how, how I think. Um, what, what does second chance mean to you then? Uh, well, I think second chance is sometimes it's somebody's actual first chance also. But a second chance means like just the embracement of Yes, this person made a terrible choice, made a terrible mistake, did some uh, 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 terrible things, but how do we get them to a place? So yes, you remove them from the community, but how do we get them place that eventual place so we could embrace them to come back to the community, bring get them to a place where we provide them healing or, or what is going on with them to make them think it was okay to harm uh, their community? And then how do we... Um, bring this person back more wholesome than than they were before. And do you think 
people in America, in California, where you are, Orange County at the moment, do you think people accept accept that? Do you think people embrace? No. They don't? No. No, I don't think so. For the most part, the, the, they will say, in theory, people will say, yes, people, I believe in second chances. But then there's all, always these caveats, right? Well, I believe in second chances. Yeah. But what if they committed a violent crime? Oh, well, I believe in second chances, but yet I wouldn't hire them at my company. I believe in second chances, but I wouldn't want them to live next to me. So, um, but I think that's part of my, uh, my mission and my, my work out here is to challenge those perceptions and to bring men and women into proximity with our incarcerated brothers and sisters to show them um, the value of human beings, even if they're incarcerated, and the value of their journey, because I think that's the other thing I always try to remind, remind our incarcerated brothers and sisters, like, just because you're in prison does not mean you have not learned anything of value, you have not learned anything transferable, and, and in fact, there's a lot of things that you may have in your own journey that is um, very uh, needed in the, in the world, so look for your gifts, you know. It's an important message. Just thinking about when you were a young man before you ended up becoming the person you are today because of the journey that you've been on. Do you know what happened to the group of friends that you had before you went to prison? Do you know whether they have found the same enlightenment that you have through their own journeys or have you been just completely disconnected with them over the last X amount of years? So, some, some of them are, are doing great now. They're family men, um, have kids, have wives. Um, doing things yeah so I think each of us has come to our own place our own journey some of them unfortunately have passed on some are on the run for other cases and I'll probably never hear from them again some are on death row so yeah I mean our, our lives have gone so many different ways but um, I'm just glad that I'm in a place where I can um, where I feel fulfilled and I, I feel like I have purpose and I can uh, help make a, a positive impact in the world. And what lessons have you learned? Ah, I think my own personal lesson is that I will still make my fair share of mistakes and I will still have to struggle with uh, giving myself grace enough to uh, pick myself up and 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 uh, continue continue on. So that that'd be my personal um, lesson. And when you came out, how, how long have you been out of prison now? I've been home uh, a little bit over seven years. And how difficult was it, e even though it sounds like you became a very well-balanced person, you're very thoughtful and articulate in, in explaining your, your own journey, w was it challenging when you first came out of prison? I mean, I know it's challenging from a kind of an adaptive point of view because things move on, right? Nothing stands still. But given that your thought process changed completely. And I don't just mean your lifestyle, but I mean your acceptance of who you are and where you want to go to. How difficult was it, if difficult at all, to adapt back into the world? It was difficult. I think what one thing I didn't see coming, and I, I'm not sure when if you experienced it coming home um, after all those years, is rebuilding of personal relationships for me. That was probably the most challenging because I think my family, my friends only knew me from as this one person from years ago and I had evolved and learned a different way of communicating and showing up and, and being myself, whether that's being assertive and with my own boundaries. And then um, there are family members and friends that, you know, perhaps didn't have to have to come to a place of self-reflection and, and um, seeing the same family dynamics of the way to communicate and me coming to a place of realization like wait my family hasn't evolved and there's a sense of disappointment but then there's a sense of understanding because they weren't the one that was incarcerated that had to do all that so um yeah i think that that was the challenging uh, part for me uh, and last question from me what what's the future hold for you kwan what what is it i mean you're obviously doing some incredible work with the charity you work for no doubt there's another book in line what does the future hold? I, I don't know. I think it's uh, where, what depends on what opens up and what, where my gut tells me to go. So I'm still just following my intuition. And that's so, so important. Well, Kwan, thank you so much for, 
for coming on and sharing your journey. It sounds like it's an incredible one. You sound like an incredible man who's gone through quite a journey to get to where you are today. So thank you so much for joining me today on Second Chance Podcast. Thank you for having me and thank you for what you're doing. So... Thanks for tuning in to Second Chance Podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. You can find the video of this interview on our YouTube channel at Second Chance Podcast, where you can also subscribe to be notified of new episodes. Please share our episodes with your friends, your family and colleagues and follow us on YouTube and your preferred podcast platform for updates on new episodes. Your feedback is also crucial to the growth of our podcast, so please rate and review our episodes and let us know your thoughts in the comments section. We rely on several talented individuals and teams to bring this podcast to life. Logan Martin assists in creating our content. Audio Avalanche handles audio editing. J-Row Productions creates original music. Studio Minerva designs our eye-catching covers. Social media marketing agency Scribble manages and creates our social media content. Kim Collicott oversees episode production with me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Thanks for tuning in. 